Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. You know, this morning, we wake up again to this coronavirus situation, and it's got just it's changed our world. And we're going to talk to Michael Allen Peck today. Just a quick on Michael. He has worked in the military. He's worked on the Hill. He started several companies. Uh, he also worked with, for Mondragon for 20 years, which is a town full of cooperatives. Didn't want to spend a lot of time on his history, but wanted to give you a sense of his background. When you look at it, if you add up all of the years, you would think he's over 100 years old, but he's not quite there yet. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Vernon. I am over 100 years old, but don't tell me. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you don't look it. Okay. You. you. don't Thank look you so it. much. You, you certainly don't either. <laughs> Thank you. So, Mike, is there anything else you want to add to your background? I just wanted the people to have a sense of who you are as you talk about these bold ideas that, that we're going to talk about today. Just that uh, I'm part of something called the One Worker, One Vote movement. And uh, a lot of these ideas come from that movement. And I would think you're 20 years with Mondragon? Yeah, certainly I'm a Mondragon-trained person. You can certainly say that. And to quickly, what is Mondragon for those who don't know out there? Sure. Mondragon is the world's largest uh, industrial cooperative ecosystem with its own bank, its own insurance company, its own university. Uh, it runs under the one worker, one vote mantra, democratic capitalism, extremely competitive, kind of big, between 12 and $14 billion in sales, depending on the exchange rate in companies all over the world making everything from car parts to bicycles to furniture to uh, medical supplies, an amazing ecosystem where democratic capitalism is practiced organically from the bottom up. What is democratic capitalism? Democratic capitalism is capitalism where people have an opportunity to ownership run by uh, one worker, one vote, uh, voting and representation, decision-making, agency, we basically say a voice, a vote, and an equity share. A voice, a vote, and equity share. Yes, sir. Okay. A voice, a vote, and equity share. Yes. Okay. So now we're in this coronavirus situation. I wanted to get there quickly. So you've said to me in the past that there's no going back. There's no going back to the way things were. What do you mean by that? Well, I got the uh, phrase from the American Sustainable Business Council. It's the ASBC campaign. I'm on the board there. Uh, there's no going back. And I think it uh, draws a clear line in the sand that, you know, COVID-19, like the previous AIDS, SARS, and other pandemics, they, they, they brought out the fact that infection traces the routes of inequality, that the pre-existing condition of Many countries, including the United States, 
is one of embedded inequalities. And these inequalities produce the lack of response, failed response, mixed messaging of the response, and who suffers the most first at the response. And we're all aware of what's happening, uh, where our frontline healthcare, home care, and emergency response workers have to make some sort of crazy Hobbesian choice. You know, do they do they save others at the risk of their own lives? These are choices no one should make. Uh, we have uh, people in in frontline communities uh, having to decide. You know, do they try for healthcare or do they try to get some food? Uh, I mean, uh, we have so poorly prepared our society to meet this pandemic equally that what we're seeing now are the fissure lines of a society torn apart by its pre-existing inequalities. So what are some of those fissure lines? I'm sorry, Vernon, say that again? What are some of those fissure lines? You said the fissure lines of inequality. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah I would say the, the, the lines where you can see the cracks, the fissures appearing in the service, all the inequalities, starting with income inequality, platform monopolies, climate change, the financialization of America's economy, the fact that we run on a society, a political society, where one vote equals one dollar and you can purchase the best government money can buy, uh, redlined and environmental injustice, underinvestment in America's infrastructure, the crumbling bridges, roads, airports, the rural broadband missing in action in rural America when we need it most. How are we going to practice telemedicine and telehealth when people don't have broadband access? Right-to-work laws in states, which really allow people to uh, work more for less, uh, don't allow people to collectively bargain. The fact that poll after poll shows that Americans everywhere view the status quo as rigged and not working for them. And imagine if they viewed it as rigged and not working for them before the pandemic. Imagine how they, how they think of it now. So that, 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 those are the cracks that are now becoming crevices and fissures that I'm talking about. So these cracks and crevices is what we African-Americans and Latinx folks have seen and lived all of our lives. That's um, true. So we know it extremely well. Um, we lived it extremely well. I mean, every day we, when we walk outside, we know we can get hit by racism and we can get hit. Whether the, and then when you look at, and this is what I get you're talking about with these lack of you call them fishery lines of inequality. When you don't have money or you get paid less for the same work than perhaps your white counterparts, then you can't afford health care. You can't afford nutritional food. You just you can't afford insurance. Then you've got to decide, as you said, do I buy food or do I buy medicine or do I go to the doctor? And all of these things tend to lead to poor health and a less life so That's right. you know you you might live to be 55 if you're an african-american male versus 75 or 85 if you're white american living with money now those poor whites may have the same outcomes so this is what you're talking about this is exactly what i'm talking about Vernon. i'm talking about the fact that the insurance companies have known for years the actual actuarial tables show that demography is, is, is destiny. Where you live determines how long you live, and we have differentials in this country depending on economic class of about 10 years between different kinds of populations. I mean, it's truly horrific. And what the virus has done is it's put a magnified lens 
on this issue and brought it up to uh, greater public scrutiny. So now we can watch it in real time as people around us die. And the interesting thing about this virus, there's no good thing about this virus. People say, well, let's talk about the good things. I, I don't see any good things. But the, 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 the interesting point of this virus is that it moves through the air. So it touches people from royalty to CEOs to poor people. But if you look at the incidence of who gets hit first and most without remedy, it's the people of the economic class structure. And that's what we have to solve because we're turning to those people to put out our fires, to man our hospitals, to provide emergency response, to pick the vegetables, to people the grocery stores to do all the importantly, incredibly important jobs that society depends on. And most of the time, uh, with the exception of some, you know, more advanced professional communities, these people are working on minimum wage and maybe or a little less. bit more. So, so when you're asking people to risk their lives to do their job, how can you justify that with a minimum wage? I think that Again, one of the interesting things about this virus is it's going to cause a massive repricing of what labor is, the labor that society needs so that it can function. And we've been in such a vertical, a vertical world in this country for so long that the kind of labor at the bottom of the economic paycheck chain turns out to be the labor we most need. Uh, and you can tell when you have sort of these mixed communities telecommuting and the people that are doing the work are talking on their phones while they're, you know, unloading the storeroom and the people at the top are talking about their second house, you know, somewhere obscure. And uh, it's just cosmically unfair. So vertical, it's up and down, right? That's right. Up this is down. all about flattening the curves. That's right. Karen. Just like they say, so, social distancing allows you to flatten the curves. Same thing we need to do economically. So I just want to get this vertical piece straight in my head, and is that the people on the bottom of this vertical are the what turns out to be the essential workers for life. They they and they don't get paid very much. And you said minimum wage. I say minimum wage or less, or the minimum wage in some places maybe seven or eight dollars an hour, and they can't even That's live right. on that. Uh, right. Even That's at fifteen bucks an hour. I mean, it's talked about a living wage of 15 bucks an hour, but I would contend to you that that does not cover everything when you talk about housing and medical care and uh, insurances and transportation and sending kids to college, all of that. 15 bucks an hour doesn't do it. Minimum wage doesn't do it if people get paid <laughs> minimum wage. And these are called the essential workers. So it's like, how do you pay essential workers essentially? How do you, this is what I hear you saying, that we've got to, what did you call it? We've got to change this massive changing of our labor laws. You know, we have to understand that poverty is the most expensive condition to be in. <laughs> poverty is the most expensive because every day you put your life, your family's life on the line. I've heard people say, well, you know, the poor people, dot, dot, dot. Uh, most of the people that I know, and we know, we work with a lot of them in, the, in our movement, they are extremely hardworking. They're working two or three jobs to meet ends meet. These people are incredible. And now we're seeing how incredible they are by the kind of work that they do, which turns out to be the work most needed to keep this country functioning. So 
It seems to me, let's bring them to the nation's bargaining table and let's renegotiate their deal. I grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, in Appalachia, and I saw poverty firsthand. And it's normally with working poor. As you said, most people had a job or two but could not make ends meet, is what my mom called it. Uh, would borrow from Peter to pay Paul, uh, had more month than money. Now, all of these kinds of things was talked about, and it was didn't make any difference, black, white, yellow, pink, or green. It didn't make any difference on this level. So, yeah, and it's exactly what you're talking about. I remember my mother being hurt when somebody broke a window or something because they didn't have money, a flat tire. Those easy, basic kinds of things did not have. Mike, we've set the stage to begin to talk about, we can talk about this some more, but I really want to get into talking about what kinds of things can we do to make changes, particularly during this pandemic and then afterwards. But we're going to take a break first and then come back and talk about, where, if you want to talk more about this, you've got some more to say, we'll talk about that. And then we want to get on to talk about what we can do now and in the future. Information is power. That's why WL is a great partner for this program, Everything Cooperative. We're talking to Michael Peck today. This is Vernon Oaks. We are we've just talked about the problems in America, the things that why things won't go back the way they have been, because we can see. It's taken a blanket, this coronavirus has taken a blanket off racism and inequality in America. Uh, it's really taken the blanket off poverty, what, however poverty looks, whether it's Native Americans, poor whites in Appalachia, poor whites anywhere, blacks, it, Latinos. It doesn't make any difference. Wherever this inequity started, 47% of Americans Michael Peck uh, would not have $400 for emergency. If emergency came back, half of America would not have it. And that's all people, all genders, all religions, all political stripes. So it's all down there. So how to change? You talk about changing the domestic direction. So let's talk about that and then go into global. So what do you suggest the changes in domestically? Sure. Well, first, Bernard, I'd like to start with the concept of resiliency. The you know, cost of resiliency. The, resiliency. the concept of right, the concept of resiliency. Uh, before okay. before COVID nineteen, um, you know, people would talk about sustainability. Now they talk about resiliency. But resiliency is a comparative advantage for cooperatives, um, and we have lots of metrics uh, and proof that you know during the uptimes, cooperatives compete favorably. Um, they compete in the upper quadrant. They may not always be the best in class, but they're near the upper strata uh, when they're going on all cylinders. But when it comes to the downturns, then then cooperatives are at the top of the list. More productive, more competitive. Uh, we keep our people, and we're more resilient. So when we talk about how to flatten inequality curves, we have to talk about restructuring the country. And if you have a particular kind of business that is more resilient, but resiliency is now 
the COVID-19 investment algorithm of choice, we have to look at companies and say, well, wouldn't wouldn't society be better? Wouldn't our quote-unquote free economy be better if we had more worker-owned, more employee-owned, more member-owned companies like cooperatives and versions of running our running our functions instead of vertically owned companies where there's a $350 350x factor difference between the highest paid and low paid, where we have shareholders with no stakeholders, where we have ex-territorial decision makers making decisions hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles away for workers who have to live with the brunt of those decisions. Can't, can't we do better than that? Can't we do better than that? Yeah, well, so I, I believe we can. I mean, I, we look at this as a resilient, solidarity economy, and we have we have lots of examples of how this works. I mean, people talk about the about the Scandinavian examples. I'm much more familiar with Spain's Basque region, where Mondragon is centered. The Basque region of Spain has the same uh, Gini index. Gini index is a global index that measures inequality. Uh, the trick with Gini is to score at the bottom of the curve. That means you have the least inequality, not at the top of the curve, like the United States, where you have maximum inequality. So Scandinavia and, and Spain's Basque region, they score pretty similar in terms of, of inequality on the Gini index. But, the, but, you know, when you get businessmen in the room and you talk about the Scandinavian countries, they love the good parts, but they walk away from the table when you talk about the tax structure. Well, Spain's Basque region has a tax structure that's much more comparable to um, U.S. coastal states. And so there's a good argument to be had that there are regions in the world that manage to have a comparable tax structure, but much better inequality uh, ratings. And uh, the Basque region also has a universal basic income where they guarantee a certain amount of income coming in, similar to what we just experienced in the stimulus check to some degree happening every month so that families know that they don't have to make those Hobbesian choices between healthcare and and food. Mm-hmm. In the Basque region, healthcare is a, is a is a is a right. It's not a privilege. It's a right. Like education, education is a right, not a privilege. Um, and so, I think that we can look at these regions that are doing it so much better than we are. You know, when we talk about America as an exceptional nation, but right now we're exceptionally the coronavirus center of the world. That's what we are exceptionally doing. And we're, we're exceptional nation at, at the bottom of the list in inequality. And, and we're exceptional mobility, nation. And, yeah. and social mobility and happiness. Um, so and, I, and what? And happy? And, and what happiness, you, and ha- yes. And happiness. Yeah, we, we, fail, we fail the exam on, on happiness. So, so um, let me give you a, an example of what we're trying to do. It's not done yet uh, by a long shot, but we're trying. And in our movement, we work with a lot of populations in inner cities. Uh, and in Brooklyn, uh, through uh, great people like Carmen Huertas-Noble, who's been on your show, and Marjorie Green, who's been on your show, and Phil Thompson and others who've been on your show, we're a part of uh, a central Brooklyn one one Brooklyn healthcare ecosystem where we're, we're really creating worker-owned enterprises and banding together with member hospitals. Um, and out of these relationships early on in the COVID-19 process before uh, taught on politically as something the nation needed to deal with, uh, we were being uh, approached uh, by, by, by our friends and our, and our extended families 
about people, you know, going into Dwayne Reed, which is a, a very well-known ghost store chain in New York City, trying to get reusable goggles because he couldn't find masks. There was no PPE. There was no there's no equipment that prevents healthcare, home care, and emergency response workers from getting sick as they try to do their job. So, so, so we, uh, on a volunteer basis, uh, tried to locate masks. And out of that situation, uh, I mean, we, and we came up with a couple of values about it, that, that people, you know, people had to do this on an individual basis, that the institutions were incapable of doing it, certainly, you know, failed by the federal government. So we came up with the idea that what's needed is massive systemic change. And a whole bunch of volunteers got together, the American Stable Business Council, Cafeterias USA, ourselves, others, and we've uh, created a concept called the People's Rising Sunshine Exchange, which is a domestic example of a dirty portal uh, that uh, is designed to be a worker member owned and governed, values-driven micro-exchange to allow these frontline healthcare, home care, and emergency responders to purchase up to 10 masks a week through a very simple uh, payment uh, process that will help us distribute these on time so that as, as these people are going to their next watch, the next duty station, they know they have a couple of masks in their pocketbook or in their briefcase or in their back pocket that can keep them out of harm's way, that can help them stay out of harm's way. Um, we, we've designed this so that you can't hoard. None of the people that we work with really want to hoard. They just want to make sure that covered. Kind of like teachers out of their meager salaries buying school supplies for the children in their classes. They know those children need because the institutions they're part of and the governments that regulate them can't provide the materials. This is exactly what's happening now. And it's an iterative process. We're not at the solution stage yet, but we're getting there. But, but it helps us because at least, you know, we feel like we're we're inside the fight and trying to do something about it. And so if we multiply these kinds of these kinds of actions, and we are by no means alone. There are advocacy movements and and organizations trying to do this. Some of the country, some of all over the country. Um, supply chains are springing up, mass across America. Amazing supply chains in Michigan for the amazing job the governor there has done. And when you look at all the different ex- citizen examples to try and flatten the curves, you know it comes out to an interesting list. And again, ASBC with their no go, there's no going back campaign has identified a couple of them that I think are really useful. And it, it's all built around culture, compensation, ownership, business performing metrics, and good public policy. The idea of putting all these factors together to come up with something that allows this country to move forward, but never go backwards. So first so you, is you, promote. Wait, wait a minute. I just want, you said, it's based on culture, compensation, ownership, ownership business, business performance metrics, metrics, and good public policy. Wow. Boy, if we had that now, what would that look like? I, yeah, so now, now we're boxing against the system. We should be using judo. We should be using momentum of what we know to be triple bottom line thinking, regenerative thinking, to take American society from where it's stagnating to where it needs to be so that we're breathing fresh air. I mean... Uh, and in the break, they, you know, the radio station gave the Washington, D.C. weather report. Well, I think they've determined scientifically that D.C. is enjoying the best air it's ever had since fresh air was reported. And, you know, magnify this to places like Delhi and, and other sites 
uh, where the air has been impossible to breathe. And you see that it's not that something good has happened in a way that you thank the virus. It's that there's a pause, an opportunity to evaluate what's happening and say, how do we take this forward? How do we not go backwards? That's, so, that's a great place. We're going to take another pause. Okay. And as we take this pause to get the weather, the traffic, and any particular news, we'll come back and say, how do we take this forward? That's great. Thank okay. you. It's an absolute pleasure, Michael, to have you on. You make me think, okay? Make me yeah. think. What can we do uh, next? What can we do I next? I love this conversation. I wish we could have it every day. Okay. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> Talk Station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Our guest is Michael Allen Peck. And Michael so far has talked to us about resiliency, and that's the ability to recover quickly when there's a difficulty, and we have a difficulty with coronavirus. We've talked about that when you have... Uh, not as much as this Gini index, that's new news to me, is measures inequality. And in the Bath region, uh, we've, we've had somebody on the program from Finland that talked about this. She said that the average person in, in Finland was in five cooperatives. And the in that Bath region, on the UN Happy Index, Michael, on the UN uh, Happy Index, these Eight countries uh, in the Scandinavia Nordic country, they come up on the top of the list year in and year out since they've been doing that. The U.S. is it was 18 this past uh, year and U.K. 19. So we're down in in the middle to the bottom of the happiness index. Uh, and I assume, Mike, from what we're talking about, this inequality, the Gini index is one of the reasons. But she said that the reason that folks are happier in Finland is because they belong to co-ops. For all of the things that you have been talking about, by in in Finland, uh, they belong to co-ops, and health uh, care is a right. Um, education is provided. People have know how much income they're going to get. They get to share in the profit. All of these reasons causes them to be happier. Now, I would like to talk to you some point about this tax thing because my research says that they talk about the taxes being higher, but I found that the taxes is higher for corporates, corporation. So I'm not even sure that's a bad thing, but I don't want to talk about that this day. What I want to talk about is what are some of the things that we can do to flatten the curve? That's what you were talking about. This We're talking about flatten the curve with coronavirus, and right. so we'll have less deaths and not so quickly so that we don't sort of just – overtake the hospital workers and those essential workers. But what can we flat do to flatten the curves on this economic and political system? Right. So, um, first of all, I think uh, let's, let's start with a practical factor. I think it would be just good, healthy process, process and I'm sure many of the 
extremely well-managed cooperatives that we have in this country where we've done something like this. But each cooperative, uh, each and every cooperative, big and small, worker, member, owned, they should have a, a documented crisis recovery plan, uh, similar to a value creation plan. And, you know, these with deliverables, internal deliverables that, that can include a transformation agenda. Um, and and what, what are the next steps to better values, uh, adopting to new customer behavior, a new competitive landscape? Uh, how, how do we improve the governance structure of products and services uh, to reflect the values? All sorts of tactical roadmaps, uh, talking about anything from pricing, customer acquisition, everything that could possibly be changed by the new pandemic economy and what it's going to be. And it's not just the clean air or the supply chain differential or the relationship between uh, traditional worker classification that now needs to be totally upgraded. It's about how do we infuse concrete solidarity into uh, the American economy so that it becomes much more regenerative and much less abstracted. And by that, I mean, what are the shared platforms, shared purposes, shared values, shared results um, that we can structure into this economy so that it, it's more representative, it's more resilient, and it's less punitive on an economic class basis. And, you know, you know, this starts with leadership, leadership. And, and, you know, seven years in the military taught me one solid factor. There is no substitute for leadership by example. And if you don't have leadership by example, then really there's no other kind of leadership. Um, and so Thomas Friedman had a great piece in the New York Times a couple of days ago. Uh, he's quoting something that said, the true antidote to fear is hope. It's not optimism. On, on the news channels and the media, we see all these these preachers, these economic uh, showtime preachers talking about optimism. And optimism is very superficial. But hope comes from inspiring collaboration, inspiring common purpose, inspiring future possibilities, inspiring the kind of aspirational America that we talk about, but it's usually from a nostalgic viewpoint. So I want to start first hearing our leaders uh, talk about hope, not optimism. And the second, uh, in addition to truth and hope, what people actually want in a leader, even a charismatic one, is humility. Because humble leaders actually make themselves smaller than the moment. Because they know that they alone can't fix everything. They need to create a team. They need to enlarge the stakeholder circles. They need to reach out for people who are so. better at solving certain things and create space for others to join them. And if we can have this kind of leadership in this country on multiple levels, starting with cooperatives, starting with our cooperative communities, just as an example, I think we can make a big difference. Hope and humility. Two H's are H square. Eight square. Okay. I love it for for leadership. Um, right. That's what overcome fear with hope and have humility to get everybody involved. This is a a team sport. It's not me alone. I can fix this. It's everybody. That's right. You shrink yourself as a leader. You shrink yourself to shrink the moment. Um, and and the moment gets drowned. That famous bathtub that they wanted to drown the government in. Now it turns out we need a government that overflows the bathtub. Um, and if you want to shrink the virus, 
uh, you have to do that uh, through humility uh, and bringing in the smartest possible people and putting them in charge. Um, and I think that cooperatives can be because of our, our interdependency, our solidarity, uh, just like labor unions. The reason why in one worker, one vote, we always try our best to put labor and, and cooperatives together is because shared solidarity is the, it's the cultural key that's going to help us win. Have you ever thought about uh, running for office? Uh, what, you sound like with this, if we could provide it hope and, and humility, which you are very humble already. So you ever thought about only, that? Only if you promise to be my campaign manager. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. No, I actually, okay. I actually marked that on the list for the next time. Yeah. Okay, so you've had four or five lives already, so we could still see that happening. So the second step, um, are we ready for the second step? Mm -hmm. Yes. So the second step is to go big, go long. Uh, think big, think global, act local, and let's pick some of the key institutions in this country that generate solidarity, but with a little more policy support could be the linchpin for the new solidarity economy. It could help us strengthen our collaborative interdependency and really flatten the curves. And my number one choice is the U.S. Post Office. Well, one of the great things about confronting the pandemic virus is that we all are realizing how necessary the U.S. Post Office is to the census, to elections, possibly community banking. There, there's already nine, there's already seven unions covering the post office. Uh, I think there's nine collective bargaining agreements. Uh, one of my labor friends will quickly correct me if I'm wrong. For about 550,000 employees. It's already unionized. If we could come up with a union co-op model where the workers would actually own uh, their own enterprise, keep it the public-private partnership that it is, uh, but make it independent of all, you know, the kind of bad treatment they've got from the U.S. Congress and all the administrations, uh, you know, playing football with the post office when the post office needs as much support as we can give them because they are the key to supporting us to help us uh, during moments that we now face. Um, I also am a, a big favor of transforming privatized prisons and hospitals and making them community and stakeholder owned, operated, and governed as maybe shared services cooperatives. Uh, I think wait, wait, hold, 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 yeah, hold sure. on a minute. Hold on a minute. Okay. I want to go okay. back before you go to the hospitals and the penitentiaries. Okay. To, okay. to, I see my postal carrier every day. It's a lady now. The, the guy that used to do it, it retired. And every day she comes, and she used to have this great big smile when you'd see her. Now she, when she comes in, she's uh, in, introvert. She, I mean, she's inside herself. She's no smiling, no, and she delivers the mail every day, whether it's priority mail or everyday mail. And, you know, used to speak and, and play back and forth. No, that's not there anymore. She is a real essential worker, and because she's out here delivering the mail, She's putting herself at risk right. and her family at risk. Right. And I have a sense she's not getting paid for that. She's not getting paid hazard pay or anything for I'm doing happy. this essential work. That's right. So you're recommending that that would become a owner, right. a owner 
business where the, these right. employees like her would own that business. That's right. It would be worker owners and be the largest cooperative in the United States. It would be a union co-op because labor unions were already there. And we have lots of successful union co-ops, and it could be another one. Um, and it would be an example of how we widen the stakeholder, how we widen the stakeholder circles, how we equate risk with reward, and how we use the, right, the rising tide of ownership where everybody has a vote. To you know, not only to, to tread, but to you know, s- survive the waters of the flood, uh, the pandemic flood that's threatening us. So, I think you know, let, let's let's take a good, hard policy look at the institutions that are emerging as vital to our national survival and existence, and let's honor them by honoring the workforce and giving them the independence and the ability to create wealth and and have more opportunity and, and more agency uh, by allowing them uh, to be worker owners of their, of their workplace. Only about 10% of Americans now own a part of the workplace they're in. And, um, and that doesn't even include, you know, the gig economy workers, the 1099 workers, the undocumented workers, the underemployed workers, the temp workers. I mean, for a country that prides itself on ownership, we are severely underrepresented in terms of the percentage of owners of our workforce back in the country. And so, we need to and what, did you say that was? Did you say that was two percent? What percentage? Less, of less, less than ten percent. Less than ten percent. Yes. Okay. So if if this if the postal service employees owned it, they would have a voice in in the policies. So they could say, we're going to have to have a crisis discovery plan. And they would create that crisis discovery plan. Not only that. Masks. We're going to have to have masks so that we survive the jobs. And gloves and whatever else it takes so that they can do their jobs. They they could say that. And the thing that I like about co-ops is they get a salary and they get to share in the profit. That's it. Okay. And they then say that the top person can make no more than five times the bottom or four times the bottom, not 350 times the bottom. And That's so right. that you have a, the equity you're talking about. And what you end up getting is people with social and finan- financial wealth. You get people that can pay for their life and their living and live longer. I mean, it's ideal. I mean, this and this is just the first one we were talking about. That's so. Right. I, yeah, I hadn't thought about this, but this is perfect with the union also and all of the right. benefits that you all have taught me in Cincinnati about how the union comes in and plays and helps this whole model work. Um, we got to take our final break, Mike. We said we got so much more to talk about. I love the conversation. We we're going to take our final break and talk about some other examples besides the social, I mean, by, besides the poster workers. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Your news talk station. Information is power, and we're giving you information about the coronavirus and some solutions to it through the cooperative model. The National Cooperative Bank has sponsored this program now, Michael, for six and a half years, and we're only we're only going to be on a month. That was our original plan. 
NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for American cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities. And this is what we're talking mainly about, our low-income communities, whether they're working people, like my father on the railroad or my grandfather in the mines or people that are carrying mail or people working in hospitals, people working in grocery stores. So low-income communities by providing innovative financial and related services. And so that's why they make a great partner for this to help us to brainstorm on how we can come out of this as a much better society than when we went into it. So, Michael, we talked about the post office and that's an ideal one to look at what and you went you started to talk about hospitals and penitentiaries jails so you want to go talk about those next or or any other examples sure what i'd like to do vernon is um i'd like to just go through a list of some of the uh sectors in the country that could be cooperativized and put into the public arena in, in a more egalitarian and productive way. Uh, and then I'd like to talk about some of the key principles going forward that we, we should put in place uh, to restructure the economy. So, so um, you know, Voltaire, that, that 18th century French philosopher, he said, if you build prisons, you'll find prisoners to put in them. And that's what happens with our privatized uh, prison industrial uh, complex when, when the motivator is profit-making there's all sorts of rules uh, that get distorted to put people in prison um, and keep them there because shareholder value. But if you draw a wider circle around that prison so that it was this new stakeholder economy concept and the stakeholders were the inmates and the families of the inmates and communities of the inmates and the shareholders were of the investors in the prison, and there was some sort of equal representation in terms of voting rights, you could bet that the, the emphasis would be put on getting people out of prison and rehabilitated into society in the best possible way as opposed to keeping them in prison. And, and, and so we see once again how the discovered extractive economy really changes the outcome for the worse. So it's not just privatizing the prisons and hospitals, turning them into cooperatives so that uh, there is a vote, a voice, and equity share when possible. Uh, and they could be operated and governed as shared services cooperatives, and we will produce much better societal results. And the money saved is like money earned. Uh, same thing, a different spin with the new utilities, what I call the private monopoly social media platforms. These now are becoming fiefdoms that govern every aspect of America. And for people concerned about the, the imminent, or some would argue already here, uh, surveillance economy, the only way to protect your data and your privacy is to have a stake in the decision-making process about what these platforms do, how they're governed, where the revenue flows go. Uh, and so there should be some serious talk. And I know uh, Senator Warren and others have talked about this a great deal. And we should encourage this kind of, of enlightened public policy um, because this is now becoming a bridge too far. And the same with conventional utilities. We have a great example in our rural electric cooperatives. You know, if you were in Flint, Michigan, and uh, you cannot tell me that if 
The Flint Water Utility, the Municipal Water Utility, was stakeholder governed and, and owned that the people in Flint would have gotten that lead poisoning. There's just no way that would have happened because they would have been in, on top of every executive decision, every process maneuver. They would have represented the people in the people on the committees running the the Flint Water Mutual Cooperative or whatever you want to call it, would have been in charge of what happened and they would have not allowed their own people to be poisoned by lead. So, okay, I want, I want to stop you a second, Michael. I want okay. to stop you to make sure that people understand this. I've, I've gotten it. But when you talk about the stakeholder-owned water utility, you're talking about the people that live in the homes. Those people like the rural electric. The people that live in the homes own that water utility. So if the people in the homes own it, the people that drink it own it, they would be responsible for creating policies so that they would not have allowed this lead to come down their pipes. And if they found out there was lead, they would have gotten fixed much sooner so their kids would not have ended up uh, perhaps brain dead from lead poisoning. Right. So that's what I'm hearing that's, you say. That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, for a country that believes in checks and balances from a constitutional perspective on down, uh, worker ownership is a check and a balance. It's a way of holding functions and entities and monopolies accountable. Uh, and so creating a shared service cooperative, I'll give you a Mondragon example. Mondragon and the Mondragon cooperative ecosystem, um, they have something called Orozki, which is the second or third largest retailer in, in Spain. Um, and what happens is the workers, uh, the worker, worker owners of, of Orozki own uh, and, and manage and govern the, the, uh, the workplace. But the consumers of Orozki um, have an ownership stake too, and they express that ownership through the foundation, which decides where to place the profits in the local communities where there's an Orozki store. And so there's a, there's a beautiful, self-fulfilling, virtuous cycle that allows shared practices, solidarity, and a socially comprehensive solution on each dollar of profit that gets generated by a mutual effort. And so the society rises together solves the problems together, and there's not as us versus them zero-sum mentality that, you know, all of America now is contented with. So, so that's why, you know, when we advance the cooperative principles, when we advance cooperative structures, and now there's many different kinds, including new hybrid kinds coming online, when we advance this, it's not because we're trying to push uh, something uh, that has a particular vested interest. It's because more profitability, more resiliency, better social outcome, uh, better civic outcome in terms of creating solidarity. Having people in their workplace practice the vote, make sure that when they're voting for uh, political elections, they show up to vote. The American voting uh, indice is one of the worst of all democracies. This is something that's going to change because if we don't vote, how do we practice our democracy? If we don't practice our democracy like any other muscle, it atrophies. And so these have become what we call self-fulfilling prophecies or virtuous cycles that we need to reintroduce back into society. Um, and why do we need to do that? Because the coronavirus has shown us where all the cracks are, where the radiation is coming from. You know, Lincoln said a house divided by itself cannot stand poor people risking their lives to help other people that are well off live comfortably in the face of great danger. 
produces an unsustainable society, an unsustainable social equation that will, that will fall apart on its own accord. And unless we want to avoid that outcome, we have to restructure. And we have to restructure from the bottom up. Uh, because leadership is by example, but all growth that is sustainable and resilient is organic. Thank you, Michael. We only have a couple more minutes to go, and I just going back to these prisons as an example. But it's all utilities that I never thought about the, the that the prisons would be owned as a cooperative. I love that idea. I thought in Italy and Puerto Rico they have they they have cooperatives inside the prison, and I and I like that. But uh, this is this is just great, man. What would you like to leave people with? Uh, we only have a minute or so to go. So I'd like to lead, first of all, by thanking you, Vernon, for who you are and what you do. The second thing I want to say is that uh, the whole philosophy of flattening the curves are about reimagining, designing, launching, and scaling virtuous cycles. This is the opposite of trickle-down. Right now, the United States is a company, it's a country built on trickle-down. In the One Worker, One Vote movement, we want to stand this on its head, reverse it, and we call this the gusher-up economy. So I want to collaborate with everybody uh, as, as much as possible, creating concrete examples of the gusher-up economy, because I think we've all had enough of trickle-down. Well, we know that trickle-down doesn't work. It gets to the top people at the top, whether that's the owners, the shareholders that own it, or the management, and it stays there. Or they may move it around themselves, but it doesn't trickle down to the labor or people at the bottom of the social economics. We know that. So I love this gusher up, turn this thing around, and that the money comes to the – so we got to get the uh, – the politicians to say this stimulus money need to go to the workers. Michael, thank right. you so very much. Workers first. Thank you, Vernon. All right, everybody out there, have a great week. Please work cooperatively, and we'll continue to look at how we can, what we can do to help come out of this coronavirus, this pandemic, in a better, better economy. Have a great day. Your news talk station. 